Hi folks, welcome to the Dream Clients Podcast where we help freelance software developers find better clients and more of them. The following interview is with Drajan Luchanin, a freelance Python developer turned freelance agency collective runner at punkrock.dev. It's pretty cool that the first Dream Clients episode is with Drajan because, spoiler alert, he reminds me in the podcast that I helped him find his first freelancing client. We talk about some different techniques of client acquisition, including one that I don't hear too much about, participating in hackathons. Enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm going to interview the wonderful Drajan Luchanin, who runs Punk Rock Dev over at punkrock.dev. And what are you guys doing over there? Hi, Aaron. Thanks for hosting me. So we are a web development and mobile uh, development consultancy. We, we create web apps. We do data analysis as well. So we're now a small team with designers, front-end and back-end developers, and we make whole applications from idea to implementation. And this isn't what you've always been. You haven't always been a, an agency. You were before a solo freelance, exactly, for, yeah, a freelance yeah. developer for quite a while. And why did you get into that in the first place? Why did you start freelancing? Yeah. So I, I was working at the university, technical university in Vienna. I was an employee there and I decided like I needed to change after this. I wanted to try freelancing to maybe get some more freedom in how I choose what to work on, what to focus on related to skills and, and like topics of interest. So I decided to give, give freelancing a go. And yeah, basically I quit my job. I gave myself a, a buffer period, like a few months to get my first client. And actually, like my first client came through you. So it's interesting that I'm on your podcast now. I can tell the story. Basically, the, the first uh, lead I had was when you introduced me to, to Harley and we, we were working on POS uh, music, point of sale music. Nice. I totally forgot about that. So that was my kind of dipping my foot into freelancing. I was on my own back then. And then over time, I, I decided to gradually grow the team and approach customers as a, I call myself a studio. So like a small team of uh, developers and designers who work on projects. So back around the time where you had your first client, you probably went on to find more clients after that. How did you find them? Yeah. So w- when I was just starting out, like my, my first impression was, I guess, uh, one one supposed to create a website and then market this website so that people would find out about me. I tried different things. Like I was running Facebook, Google ads. I was going to meetups, telling people that I'm a freelancer, that I'm looking for work. So I tried to like ring all the bells. And most of it, like at least the social part, uh, is how I still approach finding freelancers, so of, of finding clients. So I try to socialize with other developers, with other uh, entrepreneurs, talk to them and see if they know about any interesting opportunities. Uh, so actually, most of my clients come come through my personal network of, of friends, colleagues, and their connections. And do you find that in these times with there not being as many social gatherings, do you find that harder? And do you have any kind of tricks or techniques that you've used when we're not really allowed to be around each other to still yeah, socialize yeah. with people? One interesting thing that I discovered like through this whole pandemic period that it's maybe even more of an opportunity because a lot of the meetups 
happening in other cities and other countries are now online. So I actually, for example, I got to participate as a speaker in, in a meetup in Chicago, like the Chicago Python user group, which normally like before the pandemic, it would have been almost impossible for me. Like I wouldn't have flown there just to attend the meetup. But now because everything is moving more to remote, remote meetups, remote events, conferences, this is a new avenue that I can now explore. Uh, but then again, it's not exactly the same as you are well aware of. Attending an online meetup is not the same experience. There is no random serendipitous encounters with people during the coffee or beer drink, beer break. So, so this like chatter during the meetup is a bit more sterile. I find it's like there are usually some sort of chat, uh, but it's a bit weird to approach people like in the chat room during a meetup. Like, hey, what do you do? Like, how did you get into freelancing? So it's it's harder to to get to know people through these online events. But I think as a speaker, it still gives you some some opportunities to reach new audiences and meet meet new people. I I haven't been loving doing online events. I've volunteered for one. Mm-hmm. I've been asked to speak at other ones, but it just I don't feel like I could get the same amount of value out of meeting the organizers, meeting the other speakers, meeting the attendees. It sounds like you do feel like there is value in it. What are the parts of it that make it worth it to you? I think it's complex, of course. It's not exactly the same. And, and I agree with you. Like, it's, it's not the same value. And I think if I was just starting now, it probably would have been more difficult for me because I think when I look back at my first clients, almost all of them I found sort of more like friendly connections. So not really, not really, I, not really someone I connected to through LinkedIn. Uh, it, it was more like, hey, we met at a, f- a couple of events and then this person heard about like, hey, they are looking for Rails developers. And I know Gajan just started this company that does Rails development as well. So probably it would be more challenging if, if I was just starting out now from that regard. I think I would just push, again, like I said, to be more active. So not just to participate in meetups, but to try to organize them and give talks. I think you're doing a good job there. You're running mostly alone from what I know the Vienna freelancers meetups. Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Do you, do you find that being an organizer gives you some more visibility? It does. So when I have had issues, when I've looked back, so I've gone through feast and famine cycles before where I've had too much work and then no work and then too much work and no work. <laughs> when I look back a lot of the times when I had no work, I, I can see that probably in the months leading up to it, like three months out or two months out, that those were generally times that I was either just hunched over my desk working or staying. I live in the suburbs, so yeah. it would be times where I didn't really leave the suburbs at all. Yeah, I, can, yeah. I can almost always correlate those two things together. So it's hard for me to say directly that organizing meetups is it works for me really well or, or speaking at meetups, but I, can, I can't think of anything else that could be these correlations. I can't think of yeah, anything yeah. else that would connect these times together. Yeah. That So I, I think there's a huge amount of value in it. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like what you're saying is that kind of networking and building your network has been probably the most valuable thing for you as far as getting leads and finding new clients. So for me, really helped a lot to to introduce some more organization into my contacts and, and leads and so on. I was when I was just starting out, I was much more messy about these things. 
These days I use a CRM system. So what the client relationships management system, I guess that's what the acronym is for, if I'm not mistaken. And, and that really helps out a lot because then I can set reminders to follow up with people. I, I think I was very bad with that just starting out. And I think I wasn't really using my the potentials of my whole network uh, early on. So these days, whenever I, I feel like I should step on the gas pedal a bit, increase my marketing activities, I generally go back to my CRM. I look at the last conversations I had with some people through email and other media. I, I use social networks quite a lot, so Twitter, Facebook, and so on. I think they are, to an extent, a distraction, but I think they also help with just staying in touch with people. And that I think that's very important to, to you know, try to touch base with people every every now and then. How do you how do you continue to connect with people over things like that and, and not let it be a distraction? I would hardly say I am the perfect person to ask this because I, I wouldn't say I'm uh, great at social media. I, I just try to every now and then check in, check in on things, see what people are writing about, and then not be lazy, reply uh, when I can. Uh, and sometimes these things spark some smaller conversations and or something you can pick up again once you meet people sometimes not. So I think I'm, I'm not too conscious about these things, but I think I th- there's this whole movement now of people de- deleting, deleting their Twitters and Facebooks. Notch, one of those uh, famous game developers, I think he now deleted his Twitter. And I think that's something that the luxury that some more hotshot people, professionals can do. I think when you're a bit smaller, like I am, social networks still provide a lot of value and I wouldn't stay off of them just for the sake of clearing out my notifications there. I think there are better ways to do this. You've been working, I think since I've known you've been working remotely, is Mm -hmm. that correct? Yes. I I do often have clients in in Austria and I was based for a long time in in Austria. I'm not anymore. I moved to Croatia in 2019. So nowadays I do most of my work remotely. I travel still to Vienna every now and then, and I have some clients there. So I, I would say it was when I was starting out, it was half. So some remote, some in person, like uh, visiting a, a customer in their office space. These days it's almost exclusively remotely. And you're doing that also while managing subcontractors. Uh, correct. Yeah. That sounds like a bunch of new challenges to me. How do you manage that? Yeah, for, for me, the, the remote aspect isn't so challenging. There is always the, the personal uh, challenges of doing remote work, which I think there's material there to, to do a whole, talk, a whole podcast just on this. So like, how do you separate your personal, personal from your corporate space? So how do you stay fit when you're not commuting and so on? These are just, just things you have to work out for yourself, uh, see, see what works, what doesn't. I would say working uh, with my team together with, with the other freelancers, I, I some subcontracts work too, that wasn't so challenging because with them, uh, almost from the, from the beginning, we started communicating remotely. I knew all of them like through uh, personal channels, like they're, they're my friends. We, we did already have a good way of uh, communicating. So I find it when the subcontractors you have are very self-reliable and responsible. And when you delegate work to them, that they actually follow through and deliver this, it's, it's very easy for me. At least it has been so far, knock on wood. So I would say that the remote aspect of the subcontracting wasn't the main challenge. 
what what was the main challenge? So the main challenge, like the bigger things that kind of were a surprise to me just starting out, I would say were first, the whole onboarding of a customer got way more complex because suddenly I wasn't just selling like the things I'm very good at myself, I don't know, software development and data analysis. Suddenly I had to sell also the skills of everyone involved in the team. So I had to sell some design design skills as well, why it's important for the client. I, I had to sell uh, some details of why why having a dedicated person doing the backend development also makes sense. So, so I think the sales part had to be had become suddenly more broad than when I was a single freelancer. Uh, and then the second big challenge was project management. And I think that early on, I realized like, oh, I'm not up to the level I need to be on. So I, I had to read a lot on project management and getting better at, the, uh, at it. For example, one thing that you know, caused some stress and some problems was wrong estimation. So suddenly it was not just me trying to estimate work if you're doing like a fixed bid, but I had to collect the estimations of multiple team members, pull this thing together, like pass it on to the customer. And then if anyone in the team made a mistake, like we had to do kind of damage control and adapt and figure out what to do. Do I pay the subcontractors more money to, to deliver this feature or do I push back on the customer and try to connect again to the initial designs we were talking about? So suddenly you find yourself in the middle of these two crossfires. From the one hand side, you're responsible to the customer to deliver what you as the, the front facade of the company promised. And on the other hand, you also want to make it a nice work environment where people People are enjoying their work. They're not overstressed. And if they make a mistake that, you know, someone else can jump in and help them a bit. So I think being in the middle of these two things, that, that was probably the biggest challenge in moving from single person work to, to teamwork. Yeah. So I find that my estimating skills have been getting better, like even over just the last year, because I've been doing a lot more fixed bid types of projects mm -hmm. and it, it, I can't even imagine at this point having to deal with estimates coming in from multiple team members. How did you get better at dealing with estimating with that? Because you, it sounds like yeah. a super hard problem. Yeah, it is. We did a couple of like brainstorming sessions all together, and these we we were doing like uh, in person before the pandemic. Just think of better ideas how to solve these problems, and and they are solvable. Like there are way bigger agencies with like hundreds of employees that somehow can still uh, do all these things so they're not like impossible missions it just means changing your workflow a little bit uh, for example what we did so we introduced this kind of uh, design phase of, a, of every project we're doing and it serves two purposes like first of all we try to split the software development from the design so it's already two milestones and uh, we don't estimate the second part, the software development, uh, before we finish the, the design phase. So already by having two big milestones, if you, uh, I don't know, misestimated a bit on the first one, you can correct for it on the second, second milestone. But more importantly, just doing this ideation phase with our designer helps us discover some new screens, some new functionality that the user realized that they really want or expect. To, to exist in this app that we're developing for them. So having these two separate phases means then that we can get super detailed UX diagrams that we can then use for a much more precise estimation of this whole second part, like the software development side. 
uh, and that was that eliminated a lot of the problems we were having before that. So that, that's, I think, the biggest hack we did to fix our project management process and kind of client onboarding. Yeah, I've been having to also change to the idea of instead of as so much of a service that I'm delivering, that I'm delivering deliverables, like actual chunks of work that kind of have their own individual worth and value, exactly. which yeah. it sounds yeah. like, are you, for your different phases, are those actual de- deliverables? Can the customer take your design and UX stuff and go to a different software developer? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we advertise this as well, because I think this is a perk because, you know, so we, we deliver UX and UI mockups, and then depending on on the individual contract, we we sometimes just develop uh, deliver the UX mockups after the first phase, and then do the UI mockups as we're already starting development. Ideally, you do both in this initial phase, and then of course, like we, we deliver them as uh, Figma or Sketch uh, documents that then they can go to other agencies to compare prices. And by all means, I think if the customer finds a, a better agency to do the, to do the second part of the work, that's that's uh, fine for us. And I think for the customer, it again decreases the risk a bit of being locked in to just one company and then not being able to switch in case, I don't know, something happens, a bus hits me and then I can't do my work. Uh, One of the key, I don't know, someone else gets hit hit by a bus. I hope it doesn't happen, of course, but I think it helps ease the mind of customers if, if they have this option to switch to a different company. Yeah, I think also that a lot of clients just want something done. And if yeah. they can already, if they've already had an engagement with you and, and it was, and it went positively, like that your trust goes up incredibly and then they will most likely stay with you to deliver the second part. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I've had a few like uh, raised eyebrows at this, uh, when I explained this, that they can go to another agency. They're like, look, we're talking to you. We want you to, to do the whole thing. So I think not every company or not every client wants to even do this, but I think it's still important to say that this is an option always, that, that you have an option to, this isn't like a vendor lock-in. So maybe it's just my technical brain and I think of things more, more in that sense. I don't want to be locked into a certain technology or, I don't know, hosting provider or whatever. So maybe not everyone appreciates this, but I think it's still nice to, nice to mention this. And it also gives you the chance to be able to fire a client if the initial engagement didn't go super well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It it also makes it that much less harsh of a thing to do. I think that the same applies to these standard web frameworks. Like if you're doing, I don't know, Node.js or Rails or whatever you're doing, it also, it's less harsh if you know that there are other Rails or Node developers out there that you can refer the client to in case you need to exit the project. So it just, it's just more, I think, more friendly to everyone involved if there are these options. Everyone is a bit more uh, at liberty to to make their own decisions. Cool. I want to take a step back, actually, a minute. And there was there was some point in your business development where you decided I need more people, or mm-hmm. I I want to scale, or something. Where you decided that you wanted to start working, you wanted to start building more of a team instead of a just a solo yeah yeah development. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think it's, of course, a personal decision. And, and I know you're working alone. There are a lot of people who continue working alone. For me, it was also a bit of a challenge. Like I I, I said this before myself as a, a kind of a challenge if I can scale the team. 
because in the long run, I would like to, you know, have an option to, to build up complete products, not just um, staying in my niche where it's difficult to be a full stack developer. Uh, like some people are, some people maybe falsely claim that they are. It's anyway difficult. So I really wanted to have uh, a team that's good at all aspects of uh, software development, like from these uh, very early design phases to the last parts of like backend development, system maintenance, system administration, and so on. So I, I guess I, I realized like I'm not smart enough to do everything on my own. So I would either have to sacrifice some of them and say, okay, I'm going to focus more on front end or back end or go more in the design direction. Instead, I decided, hey, why don't I just get people, people who are smarter than me in, in these certain areas and, and ask them if they want to work together. And I, I like talked to my friends and some of them, they were really like up for these idea. Actually, like the first ones I, I talked to, they agreed right away. So we started as a very small team first of three people and we did this very clean separation, like one, one, one person is a designer, another front-end developer, another back-end developer. And uh, this allowed us immediately to tackle larger projects because we suddenly had more time as a team and time is your like biggest obstacle. So as, as soon as you can bridge from being just a single person who has 40 hours in a work week to having 80 or 120 or more hours in a work week, uh, you are much more uh, flexible and you can take on bigger and maybe more interesting projects. Uh, of course, it immediately then led to all these other challenges I, I talked about before, where suddenly you have to deal with what happens if someone gets sick, what happens if uh, you have mistakes in your estimations and so on. Also, something you mentioned was just the amount of project management work that goes up. How, are, how much of your time is taken up right now with management? Not too much. Like I said, my colleagues are pretty, pretty self-manageable. When we agree that someone is going to do something, they really do this. Uh, and I think this partially comes from the fact that all of us are freelancers and they were freelancing even before before they started working with me. So it's not the, the same as, as when you hire an employee. And then, I don't know, someone clocks in nine to, five, nine to five and then suddenly you're responsible to fill up their work day. I think working with other freelancers is that much simpler that in general, when you hire a freelancer, you expect that they know how to manage their time. We did have to, of course, introduce some more tools. I don't know, we use mostly Trello, one, one Trello board per project. We do this kind of Kanban style, uh, weekly or bi-weekly sprints and so on. And we, we use either Slack or Skype to communicate depending on the project. There is some amount of extra uh, project management necessary, but it doesn't all fall onto me. I think the main thing that takes up a lot of my time are the, the more salesy things. So suddenly I have to do a lot more selling and estimating uh, project costs and so on. Like some of these things you can, of course, move on to the others involved, but there has to be a single person, I think, who does the chunk of the work. Otherwise, I don't know. Everyone has to be a master of salesmanship. And I think it just doesn't make sense. It's more natural that one person does more like the sales stuff and then the others, they focus on their own tasks. And that's how mostly it works out for us. But I wouldn't say it takes too much of my time. Maybe, I don't know, roughly once every month or two months, I have these like longer meetings, discussions with potential clients where I have to spend half a day on these estimations and 
uh, onboarding and so on. The rest of the time, I mostly still do my own software development work as I was doing before. And that's that's another thing that you mentioned that you now can work on larger projects because you have so many more hours in the week. Has your marketing changed because now you, maybe it's a different type of client or the client's the same, but what is what has changed there? Yeah, to an extent, like not too much, I would say. So, so we did redo our website after we grew to more team members. And I, I guess I do approach people differently now. I act more as an agency because that's how I see myself now, delivering everything from scratch. I think when you're going at problems alone, sure, there are some circumstances when, where you can deliver the whole project if you're a full-stack developer. But I would say more likely you are more like a specialist in a certain niche. So you expect the customer to already have a team of other developers or other other team members like designers, uh, product people, and so on. I guess as a single person, I was approaching more people who who already have their team and they're more like looking for, I don't know, a Django developer or something. And as a now, since I have a team, I'm more bold to approach just entrepreneurs at some startups events and so on who, who maybe have an idea but don't have any technical skills. We had more than, more than one client who has no experience at all doing development. And then you have this whole challenge of educating them what's even software development, what are the challenges, like what are the costs, why is this more expensive than just buying a theme on, on some WordPress theme uh, theme shop or, or and so on. So it was, I, I would say now we approach more potential customers or leads who are not necessarily tech savvy themselves. And where do you find them? Again, through personal connections. So I just talk to my friends and see if they know someone. If very often people just approach me on their own, so my job is not directly to walk around, pull people's sleeves, and say, "Hey, do you have?" an extra client, but I just try to make myself uh, present and, and talk to people. And that this goes back to what we talked about, catching up with people and so on. What you were talking about, you were using a CRM. Do you have a specific one that you like more than other ones? Or I, I, I know you probably have more opinions than me on this one. I, I just looked at the existing ones. I, I picked uh, HubSpot for myself, but I, I wouldn't say I'm like uh, a pro user of CRMs. I mostly just use it to store my my contacts and then set reminders to set reminders to get back to people to follow up with where we left off and so on. You use PipeDrive, right? Yeah, most features besides the one that you just described, I don't use though. It's really just to. There's one. There's one addition that I've made to the way that I take leads in, and mm-hmm. it is to record the source of the lead. Because mm-hmm. I find that really like Pareto principle situation where there's just like a very small group of, of people that are responsible for at least contact or connecting me with uh, just yeah. a huge yeah. percentage of my lead. And it's, it's nice to track that. And also to remember this person is very helpful and to be able to give back to them somehow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, probably um, not give them work, but, but <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the one thing I was also doing for, right from the start. I had a Google spreadsheet where I was entering like all of the leads I would hear about and I would record who told me about them or where where do I know this person from who told me about the lead. And yeah, I agree. Like you said yourself, like most of the leads, they come from a very small number of people 
and they are my close friends, which probably isn't a coincidence. So my theory now is that people just like trying to find trusted people to deliver software projects because they're simply so big uh, and costly. And I think as with anything in life that's big and costly, if you're renovating an apartment like they have been recently, you try to get the the contact of who you want to hire to do this from your very close circles, like ideally someone of your friends already work with a person who does this simply because this increases the level of trust you have in this person as opposed to just googling on ads like uh, some Craigslist or whatever will happen in Austria where you would find people who do this and that's something I would say I didn't know this from the start that surprised me a bit but now it makes sense when you think about it more thoroughly I've, I've had a very similar experience that I didn't really hire service providers in the past and recently there's been more opportunity to and it's that's exactly how I do it I'm like I think about people that I know who have recently had work done and then I ask them about how it went and the cost and the like how it ended up in the end and it's it's exactly how this stuff works yeah yeah what small things do you do maybe we've already hit on this, that yeah, bring yeah. you probably the most amount. Yeah. So I would say the obvious one that I mentioned already is go to program, programming meetups. And a lot of people who are just starting out from who maybe come from the corporate world, they've been employees. They don't know this like from the get-go. I think it's getting more popular. But yeah, I would say go to meetup.com. And, and try to find events in your vicinity. Hopefully they become a thing again, despite the virus. Besides for that, I would also say other events like hackathons. I think you and I participated in at least like two hackathons together, right? I think at least two, yeah. At these events, you meet people who are very motiv motivated. Like they come over the weekend to do more development work. And then usually it's for free or I don't know, for a promise of some reward that you most likely won't get or isn't that's valuable to begin with. So you meet very motivated, ambitious people, nice people as well, if it's some humanitarian topic. So for me, hackathons have already uh, have also been like a nice sort of surprising avenue where I meet like good contacts who then refer me to, to potential customers. And it also, I think it, the hackathons uh, give you this certain level of butcher the word, word now, like camaraderie, like when you're in the ditches together and I don't know if it's some sort of all day hackathon, it's usually a bit exhausting when you go through this with someone, uh, you, you think of them maybe more likely as a potential developer you'd like to work with, assuming of course like that everything went well, that you didn't get into some arguments or something, which I, I never had really experiences like that personally. Yeah, I, I only have it a startup weekend. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely terrible. I had a weird little niche that I had going on for a while with, I think, three different projects where I mm -hmm. ended up organizing or participating in a hackathon and then getting paid to finish product. the hackathon product yeah. itself. One of those was actually... Yeah, where uh, to help, where right? To help yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a very me. successful project, yeah. like from, I think... Yeah, because of all of these hackathons that I took part in, most of them, they are very... They end as soon as the hackathon ends, uh, like the project. And I like this story because like it ended up uh, being an actual product that this like city of Vienna organization, if I'm not mistaken, that they 
decided to to hire you and others to to continue maintaining and it's still it's still in news more or less from from what i understand from you um so yeah i i think of all the hackathons this one was probably the most successful from a purely human like user perspective yeah and there's a ton of ngos on it there's a ton of volunteers on it that people are using it for things it's also open source on github if you want to check out where to help with the number two in the middle and yeah, it's, it was, it, it's, it was, it's good. Like I like when, I, cause I, I organized so many hackathons also where like it just nothing interesting came out of it, like you're saying, and this was especially nice. Yeah. Yeah. I also had a few more, like at least one more, I would definitely identify as similar in that we had serious um, uh, conversations with the people organizing the hackathon who wanted to hire us to continue doing this like more seriously. But it didn't pan out in the end. Like we couldn't agree to the terms, unfortunately. So we didn't get hired to do the work. But yeah, it came close to this. So I think definitely hackathons are something that maybe wouldn't, maybe would be a bit surprising for newcomers who just want to get into freelancing. But I would say definitely something to to try out at least in an online format if that's what's what's currently available. For a freelancer who's just starting out, I through the freelancer meetup, a huge percentage of the people that come to that meetup are beginners. Like they either haven't left their job yet or they just started freelancing. They might be in the like the 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 founding your business course that the unemployment offer, office offers here. Yeah, yeah. What is some advice that you would give them? Yeah. So when you're just starting out, make sure you, you have like a savings buffer. I would advise at least like three months of savings. So being able to pay your salary without any income coming in for three months. And then if in the first two months you, you don't find the client, then, you know, you can use the last month to get the next job. If you want to fall back to your safety net in that sense. I would also say there'll be a lot of things to think about from the beginning, like administration problems, accounting, and so on. I would say get everything else out of the way. Just focus on getting clients because that's the one most important thing to do. But then the next most important thing to do is actually deliver, delivering value to these clients or doing the, the work that they hired you for. But I think it's very easy to fall in the trap like of just, I don't know, running around doing bureaucratic things. Most of these other things you can outsource to your accountant or do later, even if you don't get everything straightened out by the time you start doing the work for the customer, you can do this, do this as you're working. So I think that's what I did as well for the first few weeks. I was still handling the administration. So when it came time to really invoice the customer, I was just about then finishing everything and, and ready to, to issue a formal invoice. But even if you don't have this, don't sweat about it. I would say focus more on finding the clients. And then for regarding where to find clients, yeah, I think we talked about this already, meetups, hackathons, reach out to your network, like past colleagues, current colleagues, make a nice, exciting website to announce to the world that you're doing this. Like maybe the website won't serve so much for people to find you online by Googling hire a freelancer in Vienna or somewhere, but the website will maybe be useful for you personally, like psychologically have this thing, hey, I'm now a freelancer, and then your friends see it, and then they're like, ooh, Drajan is a freelancer. Oh, let me think if I can help him somehow. Because I think the funny thing for me was that a lot of people were very passionate about this and they wanted to help me out. And I think you helped me out, from, like I said, from the get-go when we talked. 
you connected me to your current customer. So I would say try to ring this bell like you won't be doing this too often in life. Just announce it to everyone and see what happens. I would still encourage people to try because despite all these challenges we, we talked about, I think it's a very, very nice way to work uh, where you have a bit more responsibility in um, what you choose to work on and what you choose to specialize in. Uh, and I think down the line, it gives you some more gives you, I hope, a good basis to build to build an interesting career. That's great. That's great. Uh, great, great information. <laughs> I don't know how to do a podcast. Now would be a good time for you to give any recommendations for books, talks, articles, um, anything that you've consumed that you think would help out with people acquiring clients sure sure so or i have anything a, that else that you would think would be interesting yeah yeah i i, I wrote down a few things I'll, I'll just tell you names now and i'll send you the links later on so if you have show notes or something you can post the exact links there so regarding books the the first obvious one that we mentioned always at the vienna freelancers meetups is get clients now that's a very as you've also read it multiple times right it's a very step-by-step -step guide uh, showing you how to get your first clients. And it's more like a workbook. So something like it gives you assignments to do every day, every week. And I think that's very helpful because it's very overwhelming, like I already said, to start freelancing. So I think this book gives you a nice uh, focus on how to do things properly. I, I, Funny enough, I didn't start with this book. I only discovered it later on through your your recommendation. But even later on, when you already have customers, it's very interesting because it can teach you like which part of your pipeline to to improve. Like for me, I learned a lot, I think, about following up. And that's when I set up a proper CRM after, after reading this book. So that would definitely be one recommendation from a more maybe unusual direction. I would pull out Thinking Fast and Slow. I think this book really changed the way I think about human biases and it really goes systematically through the way people people think like from this like a very primordial level like back from when we were apes teaches you like some things that people get wrong very often and funnily enough a lot of these things they tie back to certain like business negotiation problems you will encounter like negotiating prices and that's where things like priming where you, I don't know, uh, an example, you're talking about some prices. And if you mention a very high number, like a million euros or a million dollars, and then suddenly if you, if after mentioning this high number, you go down a step to a smaller number, suddenly this second number that you mentioned doesn't seem as high than if you had started originally mentioning like a very small number, I don't know, 10,000 euros or $10,000. And then suddenly you mentioned like the second number, I don't know, 100,000. In this second scenario, people find the 100,000 to be a lot of money as opposed to when you step down from a million to 100,000. Like uh, this, this is, of course, like a very, I'm just pulling this example from my sleeve. It's not maybe realistic, just these are the types really? of things that <laughs> these are the types of types of things that like they teach you about in this book and and uh, I think it changed definitely the way I think about uh, conversations and and brains and how brains work. So thinking fast and slow, I would add two more things. So one 
because I think a lot of freelancers, and I think you, you also mentioned this, we, we start with wanting to build products of our own, be it like productized services. I don't know. Uh, I, for example, I created a course, uh, Jupyter Notebook for Data Science, and that for me was like a nice little endeavor uh, where freelancing gave me time to focus on my own product like that. And where I learned about doing this is through the Marketing for Developers course. So it's an online course. There is a book as well, but I think the course is more, more interesting, like easier to follow where it's really meant for developers. And I think maybe a lot of your speaker, uh, your listeners might be developers who are getting into freelancing. It just teaches you about marketing and more from this like product marketing perspective. So how to empathize with your audience and how to, to guess what they might be trying to solve and how to approach them, how to communicate to them, not from your very like egoistic perspective. Hey, I want to sell you my course, but trying to be more empathetic. Hey, this person maybe is interested in learning something and that the communication should be much more about them and how do you help them level up and, you know, be more centered, uh, centered around the person you're trying to uh, sell something to as opposed to being centered around yourself. And the last example I would give, like that's a recent book I read, but I really like it. And I think it's, it's uh, useful from, from this like project management being difficult perspective. And it's called uh, OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. Uh, there's a longer subtitle, subtitle but I'll, I'll give you the link. The, the main title is like uh, OKRs. And it's this project management methodology used by Google, by Intel, and by a, a lot of companies uh, like the Gates Foundation. And it's very interesting because it's think of it as some sort of like hierarchical to-do lists where it's not just like a flat list of things you want to work on. You try to more hierarchically tie them to more and more abstract goals. And then the top goals is something really like your North Star, something you're striving towards. And when you have this set up in this hierarchy, it's much, much more motivating for people to achieve these tasks you included. It's also meant for bigger organizations as well. So if you have a team of people, you can also set up OKRs. But I think also as, as an individual, it's a very interesting methodology that I've started using myself as well. I was working for a company where we were doing them and it's a very painful process to start with also if you have a, it is, an organization. It is. I think we were like around 14 or 15 or something people, but it really felt like a good, it felt like it was really good for us. Like we needed that structure, but it was, yeah, it was yeah. very painful. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cause it, it really gives you like a whole different way to think about goals and, and how to tie them together and goals between teams and so on. And I think it's supposed to be painful as well. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it, you come out of that and you get stronger from it. Yeah. I would also say so. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you for having me, Aaron. And where can people, so where can people find you? You're talking about, you're active on Twitter, your website. What, where's the yeah. best place for people to get in touch? So yeah, I'm Meta Kermit on most social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, and so on. And my company is Punk Rock Dev. So punkrock.dev or punkrockdev.com, doesn't matter. Both links work now. So yeah, if you're looking for a team to help you build the app or web app uh, of your dreams and get in touch with us through the website. Yeah, we'd be happy to talk to you. Thanks again, man. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, have a nice day.
I really like the hackathon route. There are a ton of different opportunities based on how you show your best side to potential clients or peers who can then recommend you to their clients or other people. I like to give talks, but also I really love hackathons because I like to be creative with coding and build these one-off monster projects. One time we built a Hello Kitty emoticon chatbot that you could use to do secret transactions with the dark web. And I also get to give presentations at the end, so it's a win. But if you have stage fright, Wikipedia says 75% of people have anxiety with public speaking. There are a lot of other things that can suit your personality, and hopefully we'll be hitting on some of those things in the next episodes. So thanks for listening. And again, if you want to be notified when new episodes arrive and get some extra lead generation hacks and tips, sign up over at podcast.dreamclients.io and see you next time.